Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we do each and every time before we open your word, we bow uh, our heads and turn our uh, thoughts and attention uh, to you with reverence and awe. We understand that the words which we hold in our laps, which we are about to read and to study, are words that you have proclaimed. These are your words. And your words are sent out for a purpose. Your words have meaning and value and significance. And Father, I pray today, as we study your word together, that Lord, that you would be pleased to meet with us, that you would be pleased uh, to bless us through the study of your word, that our lives may be shaped further and further into the image and the likeness of Christ our Savior. And Father, we are going to pray for all of the churches in our area where pastors will be standing this morning and proclaiming the truths of your words. Father, we ask that you would multiply, that you would bless those pastors and multiply their ministries. Father, we could fill up every church in Alamance County and still not have reached the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we need every church to flourish. We need every church uh, to thrive. We need every church to have a God-fearing man of God standing in the pulpit who will not be people-pleasers but be God-pleasers. God, we need our churches to be strengthened. We need our churches to be multiplied. And, God, we need... A mighty movement from you in our area. And we pray diligently for that. And Lord, we're just going to uh, continue to seek to be faithful and to reach out and to invite and to connect and to witness and to love and to serve everyone that we come in contact with. Trusting you to work out your salvation in their lives with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name we pray. And God's people said... Amen. Continuing our study in the book of Revelation chapter 3, remember we are studying the letter to Philadelphia. The letter to Philadelphia. And this is a fascinating church. It's a fascinating church because we have really no idea what size church it is. Uh, We don't know whether it's a large church or a medium church or a small church. And In terms of the size of church, it doesn't matter in terms of the value of the church. Size and value are not connected in uh, in any way. Uh, Just because a church is large doesn't mean that it's been uh, more faithful and effective. And just because a church is small doesn't mean that it hasn't been faithful. It doesn't mean it hasn't been effective. Remember, Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. And certainly that means the universal church. But if he's going to build the universal church, that's going to have an impact on the local church as well. As we have seen in the past, this particular letter to the church of Philadelphia is, is well worth studying because there are so many good things about this church. 
And unfortunately, we don't have a list of all of those good things because God did not choose to include those in His Word. and Jesus didn't include all those things in, the, in this letter. But at the same time, we want to study this because this is a church upon which Christ had no condemnation. There is no critiques in this letter at all. There is nothing but affirmation. There's nothing but praise. There's nothing but assurance. There's nothing but um, uh, confidence, building, assurance, giving, love for uh, this church. And, and I don't know about you, but that's what I want Doxa to, to become. Now, let's be clear. Was it a perfect church? No, no, it's in that regard. It's not like Doxa. It's not like Doxa. We are perfect, right? Oh, no, 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 uh, we're not. And that starts here in the pulpit. But so no church is, is perfect because the church is made up of people and the people are right are not perfect. And when imperfect people come together, two imperfects or 10 or 20 imperfect people come together doesn't make perfect. It doesn't. Only one was perfect, and and that was the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth to live the perfect, sinless life that He lived in order to be the Savior who could die in our place to fill up what's lacking in our life, to uh, impute righteousness uh, to us. So no, this isn't a perfect church, and I don't want to even proclaim or lead you to believe in any way that I think this is a perfect church. But if it's a church that Christ had no condemnation for, then I want to know about this church. And I want to know what it was about this church that we can learn and we can see how we can make sure that those things that we do know are a part of the church that we are trying to plant by God's grace. So here in Revelation chapter 3, we've already seen uh, that Christ identifies Himself not with um, flaming eyes of fire, not with the sword coming out of judgment, coming out of His mouth, not in any way relating to judgment at all. In fact, this is the only letter that when it comes to the description for which Christ um, uh, reveals himself in this letter. Remember, in the other letters, he Revelation chapter 1 um, would be a description of Christ. And he would pick one or two of those and he would come in and that's what he would use to describe himself to the church. This is the only letter that what we see in terms of his description is not found in the physical description, description of Christ. He says here, thus says the Holy One, the True One, and we've spent much time talking about that, and the One who has the key of David. And I believe that the significance, and we've spent a lot of time on it the last three weeks, the significance uh, that separates this church from many churches is found in that in that beginning of that part there, the one who has the key of David. Now, now, why do I say that? Because this church, as we have seen in the past, is a, is a second coming emphasis church. It's a church that focuses on the second coming. It's a church that, that a lot of things that are seen here, in fact, we're going to understand both this, these verses that we've looked at in the past, today, and what we'll look at in the next several weeks. They are all about what happens more when Christ's return. 
So in the past, we've looked at the Davidic covenant past weeks. And, and we have said that, that God established David's throne. And David's throne will be established forever. And one day Christ will reign and rule from David's throne, which will be established forever. But all of the promises in the Bible that talk about uh, the, the blessings or the benefits or the promises related to David's throne are indeed second coming promises. In fact, we looked at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For unto us a child is born and unto us a Savior is given. Right? And the government shall rest upon his shoulders. The government hasn't rested upon Christ's shoulder yet because he has not reigned and ruled here yet. He has the key. And one day he will. But remember, when he came in his first advent, though everyone was looking for him to reign he did not come to reign in His first coming, His first advent. He came to redeem. And aren't you glad that He did? For beloved, if He came to reign in that time uh, and not redeem, then we would have no access to God, no access to the Father, no part of the blessed God, no part of the family of God. Christ had to first come in order that we could be redeemed so that, so that when He comes again in reign, we are not only part of His kingdom, but even as we are going to see today, we will be, yes, reigned by Him. But beloved, also, we will reign with Him. We will reign with Him. So He has the key. He can come and take the throne. Right now, Israel does not have a king. They have a prime minister. But one day they will have a king and his name will indeed be Jesus. So the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one open. Look at this, verse 8. We talked about this last week. I know your works. And then he stops. I know your works. And then he just stops. He doesn't go on to say that you're this and that, but you're lacking this. He doesn't say you're this and you're that and leave out other things. He simply says, I know your deeds, I know your works, I know the things that you have accomplished. This is not so much about their laborious effort. This is not labor and toil as much as it is, I know the works, the accomplishments, the tasks and deeds uh, that you have done. And he just leaves them there. He doesn't, he doesn't criticize them at all. He doesn't critique them at all. One thing this church was not like is it was not like the church at Ephesus. It was not like the church at Ephesus that had all these good doctrines and, and these good deeds, but they had left their first love. Christ doesn't mention them leaving their first love at all. And you can go through and compare with all the churches and all the things that he pointed out and critiqued and condemned in the other churches. We can know it, that, that they were not a part of this church or else he would have included those in this letter. So he says, I know your works. I know your works. And, um, and, and, and from there, he changes direction. And he just, he says, I know your works. And he throws out, uh, in the original language, a behold. In fact, even as we saw, uh, last week, and we're going to talk about one of those today, there are three beholds, or in our translation, look, 
pay attention to, right? Uh, all of these things that, that grab our attention. In our translations, there are really only two that, that are translated here, but there are actually three in the, in the text. And so I want to read these verses and look at what it says. He says, verse 8, I know your works. Look, that would be the first behold. Look, stop, pay attention. Right? It would be written, every time the word behold is in the Bible, it really ought to be written with an exclamation point right after it. Right after it. Because it's a, a behold. It's look, pay attention to. Don't miss this. So he says, look, I have placed before you an open door that no one can close because you have but little power. Yet, or behold, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, note this, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. That's as far as we're going to get. Uh, today And we're going to focus the majority of our time really on verse 9 because we've looked at verse 8 in the past. We've said in the past, uh, past studies last week, for those who weren't able to be with us, that when he says, I've set before you an open door, it means several things. Number one, that there is a door and that door doesn't just randomly show up. It isn't like that we just go along and go, oh, there's a door. Where did that come from? No, he says, I have placed before you. So as we're going and as this church was moving on and, and, and living life, God is the one who has placed an open door before them. In fact, it's not just an open door. Notice what it says. It is an open door that no one can close. No one can close. And we said last week that, that this is not just God opening the door for a new job, which is fine. This is not God opening the door to, to move to a new city, to land a new job, and to, and to take on. How many times do we say, look at the door that God has opened for me. He's opened the door uh, uh, to uh, buy a new couch. Or He's opened the door to buy a new car. He's opened the door. Look at the door that God has opened for me. Now listen, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying that. Particularly if you're with us on our, on our Wednesday nights, we're talking about predestination and free will and the sovereignty of God and all the areas and things that, that goes in. Great discussion. I'm looking forward to picking up again on Wednesday about that. Um, but, 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 but this is not just God randomly opening a, a door, which is true. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. But this is a more of a specific door. And it's the door of salvation leading to eternal security. Why? Because it comes right after the key of David, which turns our attention to the second coming and the second coming of Christ. And so when he talks about the key of David and opening a door, he's basically given us eternal security and the salvation that he has given us because he himself was the door of salvation. And as we walk through that door of salvation, we walk through the door of eternal security and no one will snatch us out of his, out of his hands. And therefore, as we've talked about in the past, all the promises of God 
particularly those related to the second coming, are yes and amen in Jesus. And so because He has opened the door, the effects of Him opening the door are threefold. He didn't open the door because they have power. In fact, He specifically says they have little power. But it's not... So, so the... the It doesn't say that the church at Philadelphia had power and therefore God recognized their power and placed before them an open door. It's the other way around. The the power is an effect of God opening the door, not the cause of it. Does that make sense? In other words, God, whose eyes are going to and fro on the face of the earth to see those whose hearts are turned to Him, who is righteous, God is actively seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Absolutely. But God did not see the church in Philadelphia and go, Oh, look, they have some power. Therefore, let me open the door for them. Now, I want to make that point because in a lot of churches today, They view Christianity that way. And so it's all about name it, claim it. It's all about power. And it's all about binding God to do these things. God, because I'm this and because I'm that and because I'm claiming this and naming that and calling this that, therefore God is bound to do what we say because we have spoken it. Beloved, it is not that way at all. If anything good happens, it's because of the faithfulness of God and His proactive work on our behalf and not the other way around. God has placed before them an open door and yet they have a little power. Now we could spend some time there looking at the the, um, uh, things we've noticed in the past in the same area. They would have the same trade guilds in this area that the other churches had that we looked at. Remember the trade guilds? The trade guilds would be uh, where they would, uh, in the in their various craftsmanships and various um, uh, work-related areas, they would come together, and that would be kind of a support group. But it also kind of became a religious study. It became kind of a, an idol worship, and became all these things that it shouldn't. And if you were a part of the guild, you would have to worship false gods. And if you were not a part of the guild, then basically you were written off and you lost your livelihood and things. We've talked about that in the past. You can go back and listen online if you want to, to the other churches that where we, where we discuss that. But this would be one of those places where Though they're in this powerful place because they did not participate in those things, they lost out on a lot of everything related to life and livelihood and possessions and riches and things along those lines. Yet God looks at them, places an open door before them, and He says, You have little power. You have little power. Yet you have kept My Word. In fact, those two things are intertwined. You will not have the power of God on your life without being obedient and keeping the Word. And you will not keep the Word of God, okay? You will not keep the Word of God and obey the Word of God and apply the Word of God in your life and do those things and not ultimately have power. 
Those things are connected. Why? Because the Word of God is powerful. And as we live our lives according to the principles of God's Word, and as we live our lives in light of what God has said in His Word, then we are pleasing to God. And when we are pleasing to God through the shed blood of Christ, not a works relation, not a works salvation, but a works relationship, because we are in relationship with Christ. As we obey and keep His Word out of an attitude of gratitude, the power of God is with us. And beloved, anytime the power of God in any capacity is upon us, it is so much more than anything the world has to offer. In other words, if you could quantify the power of God, I would rather have the power that God has in His pinky than I would to have all of the power that's in the world. Because it's so much greater. So there's a connection between the two. If you want the the hand of God, we would say, if you want the power of God on your life, then you're going to keep the Word of God. And so those two are intertwined. But notice this third thing. Notice this third thing. He says, I place before you an open door because, one, you have little power. Two, you've kept my Word. And three, have not denied my name. A couple aspects that we could talk about there in terms of denying His name. Um, For example, if you're out and about and you're talking and walking and and, and living life to the fullest, and there's an opportunity for you to share Christ or to interject Christ into that conversation, to share the gospel, to communicate, uh, and God the Holy Spirit is prompting you, right? Hey, you've been talking about the three circles. Hey, you've been talking about witnessing. You've been learning about the gospel. God is doing all these things in your life. You have the Word of God that you've been studying. The power of God is on your life. And now you have have an opportunity to share the gospel of God and you do not. Listen, beloved, you deny His name. Any time that we fail to correct other people's understanding of Christ and who He is, because we don't want to create conflict or we don't want to, we just want to, mm, that's not right, but I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Listen, is that denying His name? In another capacity, in a stronger way, in a stronger capacity, beloved, it, it, uh, it also means this. It also means this. In the Old Testament, time and time again, there are prophecies about Christ and His name, His power, His authority, and the things that go along with His name that have not happened yet. And there are many, many, many so-called believers and Christians who study God's Word and see those unfulfilled prophecies and have no way to see with their own eyes how those prophecies are going to come to pass. 
have taken an alternate understanding of God's Word through liberalism or existentialism or all of these things. They've reinterpreted God's Word to say what they want to say instead of allowing the tension in God's Word to be there and the anticipation of His coming and and the fulfillment of all these promises. And because they have rejected those things, they have denied Christ. They have denied my name. Denied my name. We we could take some time and pause right here and say, how have we denied His name? Oh, I haven't today. Right? Why? Because I'm in a safe place. I'm with Christians. We all believe a lie. Nobody has any problem with my beliefs. I have no problem with your beliefs. We all believe the Bible is the Word of God and all these things. No, no, beloved. We would not deny Christ's name here, gathered together in worship for the most part. What about when we leave here? What about the communities that we go into? What about the things that we do, the places we go? Right? The places we spend our time, the things that we do, do we by our actions and by our attitudes, do we by our behaviors and the things that we act out and do those things, do we cause people to not see Christ in our life in those areas? Driving down the road, whatever it is, you, you fill in the blank of whatever it, your life and, and, and all are there. But in the things that you do, in the places that you go, do you, right, do you uh, declare and pronounce Christ and Him lifted up and all of those things in our lives align with that? Or do we by all of those things deny Christ? And beloved, may the Spirit of God bring conviction on us all if we by our attitude and by our actions and by our things deny Christ in any way, shape, form, or capacity. And those who have kept the Word of God, that have the power of God upon their lives, have no problem not denying His name, but believing and proclaiming it for everyone uh, around them. And then he says this in verse 9. Note this. It's behold. Note this. I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. And they will know that I have loved you. Interesting verse, isn't it? Interesting verse. Because this verse, whenever you're looking at it, you're like, okay, I'm following along. I'm trekking along. Do what? So, has this happened? We can't really go back and look at any place in history and say, Ha! Just like God said, these Jews came, right? And they bowed down and man, God elevated and lifted them up. Look what God did. God keeps His Word. You can't find anywhere in church history, in any history anywhere, Related to the church at Philadelphia, that this has ever been fulfilled. 
And so liberal scholars, what they'll try to do is they'll try to make it someone else. Well, it was a relatively small area, small location, and it happened, but just because it wasn't recorded, it happened the way they did, and, and maybe it was an event, maybe it was a day, maybe it happened not physically, but maybe it happened in principle, and maybe, you know, so they have to do all these uh, theological gymnastics to try to figure out, to, to say, there has, to be, there has to be more than that. I mean, I want you to notice again, uh, he says, note this, I will make, I will make them, they will know. So this is not obscure. This is not, I mean, there's not really, I mean, I guess you could do uh, theological gymnastics and say, make means something other than make, or but you can't do that um, with any integrity at all. So how in the world should we understand this? And, and, and in order to understand it, I think we have to study God's Word and we have to go from place to place uh, in the Bible. You say, well, why do we have to go from place to place? Because all of God's Word is true and God has chosen to write to place His truth throughout all the Bible. And so we have to kind of look at this and, and, and draw some observations here, look at some things in other places, and help us to make sense of what's going on. And what I'm hoping to convince you of is that this hasn't, this didn't happen. And what I would say is it hasn't happened yet, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. In fact, I think because everything else in this is related to the second coming of Christ, that this will ultimately be fulfilled uh, ultimately and finally in the days ahead of us. But there are some aspects of this that are already in place today. Okay? So, and, and relates to you and I. Is all of God's Word relevant? Yes. Is all God's relevant for today? Yes. Some more relevant today than others. But listen, this is one of those that I believe absolutely is relevant to where we are today. This is not a history lesson. And it's not just a prophecy lesson. It it impacts our lives today as we understand Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. You ready to dig in? All right, good, good. You didn't say a thing. You look scared, but it's okay. It's okay. I got this. I got this. All right, now, first thing, I want to just look at what's obvious on the page. He says, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan. Now, we've seen synagogue of Satan before, have we not? In fact, if you look over at uh, the letter to the church in Smyrna, Revelation chapter 2, particularly in verse 9, we have seen the synagogue of Satan before. Uh, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, are a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue of Satan. Now, there is not a physical place in Smyrna, not in Philadelphia, and not anywhere um, that's going to come right out and say we are a synagogue of Satan, just like the Bible says. Now, there certainly are satanic gatherers and satanic temples and worshipers and things along those lines. But this is not what that is. This would have synagogue on the outside of it. And they would say that they were the true Jews, true Israel. And they would believe in their hearts that the things that they were doing was for God and not for Satan. And in fact, you could just look at the Apostle Paul's life and see how that would work. 
The Apostle Paul, before he was the Christian Apostle Paul, he was a Jew, right? He was, he was killing Christians and he thought he was doing it for God. He thought, he'd be like, he'd be like ISIS. It would be similar to what he would what he would be like today if you were to equip him. He would be a terrorist. And he would go away, and he would go out, and they would stone people and kill people and kill people under the authority of the government in the name of religion. That is, that's what's happening here in the synagogue of the Jews, or synagogue of Satan, by those who claim to be Jews that are, but are not. They may even be Jews, uh, nationally, ethnically. But there's a difference between Jews ethnically and the Jews who follow Judaism. And, not all Jews practice Judaism. In fact, some are saved and practice Christianity. So just because you're a Jew ethnically doesn't make you a Jew uh, in terms of following the Jewish religion. So what he's saying here is there's synagogue and there are people who are Jews in these synagogues and they're claiming to be God's chosen people and they claim to be doing God's work and yet everything they're doing is is really look through the eyes of correct theological doctrine. Look through the eyes of those things. They are not on God's side for God. They are opposed to Him. I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I do want to make this parallel. That there are many ch- churches... Many places a day where the sign says church that people gather that believe that they are the real legitimate church, but they're not. They're not. They don't teach the Word of God. They don't preach the Word of God. They don't teach the full gospel of God. They do all of these things. They, they are not, they are not a legitimate church. No matter what they call themselves, they are not. And from God's perspective, He may say they are the church of Satan. But notice what happens with these. So here they are. They, they're from the synagogue of Satan. They claim to be Jews, but are not. They're lying. They're lying. God hates lying, by the way. Uh, lying lips are an abomination to God. Notice everybody thinks that God would only say positive things. And here He calls these group of people. He says, you're lying in your in the synagogue of Satan, though you think you're in a house of worship. Uh, we have got to change this manby pamby weak image of God that's kind of per, perpetuate, per, uh, uh, penetrating our uh, area today. Uh, old Jesus, so weak and mild mannered, he was a turn to cheek, go the extra mile kind of guy. And yes, he was when he came, but he was still a man's man. 
And He still turned over the, the tables in the temple. And He still did all those things there because He is a man's man. He's God's man. But listen, when He comes back, He was not going to be meek and mild, the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. When you see Christ again, listen, He's going to come in judgment. The Father has placed all judgment into the Son's hands. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's how He is coming. And all judgment rests with Him. It would help you and me to see Christ in the totality of who He is. To see Him strong, high, and lifted up. To see Him rock solid. See Him having all judgment in His hands because it will change your prayer life. Instead of this maybe pain, if you are able, if you can, if you will. No wonder it's going to say necessarily spews them out of their mouth. It makes him sick. But here he is. And notice what he says. He's identified them. Notice what he says clearly. Simple future tense. Verse 9. I will make those. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. And because... Let he who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. They're going to come. And if you know Christ as personal Lord and Savior, they're going to come. And they're going to bow down at your feet as well. Seems a little odd, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm going to be bowing at the feet of Jesus. I'm sure the people in church of Philadelphia, they're saying the same thing that you and I are saying. I'm going to be bowing at the feet of Jesus. Nobody's going to be bowing at my feet. I'm going to, but God, I remind you, God is the one who says, He is the one who says that they're going to come and they're going to bow down at your feet. So that's what we need to look at. That's what we need to understand. So in order to do that, we've got to look at a couple places. We've got to look at a couple, couple places. Um, first thing I want to do is, is I want to see, well, how is that going to happen? It's going to happen because God's going to change their heart. So you don't have to follow and trek, but unless you want to, you can go back and you can jot these verses down and, and you can take a look at it. But I just want to remind you of Zechariah chapter... Chapter 13. In Zechariah chapter 13, God is giving prophecy about the people of Israel, the Jews, and basically says that, that they're going to be cleansed. They're going to be cleansed. Uh, you know that they've rejected Christ, they've rejected the Messiah. Um, they are practicing their religion, their religion, but they're not practicing religion in the fullness. They're not doing sacrifices and things uh, like that today. They haven't done that since AD 70. When we come to the tribulation and we come and we look ahead in Revelation 6 through 18, 
we're going to have to kind of identify who the people are and where they are and who's where within the tribulation. Uh, there are going to be many people, many Jews in particular, killed during the tribulation period. In fact, the majority of the Jews will be killed. Some are going to be killed uh, at the beginning. Some are going to become Christians and become martyrs for the faith. Um, but there are many going to be cut off. So, so here in Zechariah chapter 13, God says that on that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. That's where we get the song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flow lose all their guilt and stain. Right? Now, why? Because there is a fountain, right? And that, that's where this comes from. There is. And he's going to wash away sin and impurity on that day. Zechariah chapter 13. This is the declaration of the Lord. I will remove the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. I will banish the prophets and unclean spirits of the land. If a man still prophesies, his father and his mother who bore him will say to him, You cannot remain alive because you have spoken a lie in the name of the Lord. I would be honest with you. I wish they would do that to some Supposed prophets today. These who claim to speak for Christ, uh, even in light of these hurricanes and things that are happening, uh, it's, it's, it makes me mad. Um, verse 7. Sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of the armies. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's happened to Christ on the cross. I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land. This is the Lord's declaration. Two thirds will be cut off and die and a third will be left in it. Two thirds. Isaiah says that the tree is going to be cut down. Only the stump is going to remain. Nine-tenths, nine-tenths, two-thirds. The vast majority of the Jews are going to die. They're going to be cut off. But a third will be left in it. And I will put this third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. And test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name. And I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. So just like the Apostle Paul who was hostile to Christ, God gave him, met him on a Damascus Road experience, completely changed his life, completely changed his outlook. That's what's going to happen to even those who are of the synagogue of Satan in Revelation chapter 3. So that answers the question, how are these people going to turn and now worship Christ and bow at the feet of, of Christ? And But how is it that they're going to bow at our feet and at the feet of the Christians in Philadelphia? Well... In order to in order to go there, we we have to look at a couple of a couple of things, and, I, and I'll do this quickly. I'll do this quickly. I, I, uh, we have to look at a at a couple of things. In some ways, we as Christians, we share in the anointing that Jesus enjoys as Christ, the Anointed One. 
in some ways we already have a sense of His anointing on us. For example, if you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. This is what the Lord says. Or this is what John said to the church. He says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from truth. So there is a sense that God, that, that you already have an anointing, <coughs> excuse me, from the Holy One. Go down to verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from Him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, His anointing teaches you about all things. So there's some aspect that Christ, who is the anointed one, when we come uh, and surrender our lives to Him and are saved, that, that we experience His anointing as well. Therefore, every believer fulfills the prophetic and the priestly and the kingly roles for which our Savior has been anointed. So in a sense, we are all prophets called to proclaim God's word. We're all priests ordained to offer ourselves as sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And kings enthroned to war against the Lord's enemies and to help Him expand the kingdom. We do that through gospel proclamation. Through gospel proclamation. Yet we do not share in Christ's kingly office only in the sense that we fight against the devil and his minions. Rather, listen to this, we also reign with Him over His creation. Over His creation. Now, that was the way it was supposed to be from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. All of creation was supposed to be under the reign and rule of man. God intended it that way from the very beginning. Rule the fish of the sea, the bird of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And God says, I've given you every seed. I've given you everything. Reign, rule, subdue the earth. And yet Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, he plunged the whole world under the curse of Satan. And therefore... We do not reign and rule over the earth now, do we? Can you call the bird and it comes? Are you kidding me? I can't even call the cat that lives in my house to come and it comes. (laughs) And yet when Christ came and He purchased us and He, right... 
he, when he comes to reign and rule, all of the earth will reign, uh, will come under his reign and come under his rule. Will it not? And, and notice what the Bible says in Second Timothy chapter two. Second Timothy chapter two. Verse 11, this is a trustworthy saying, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him, with him. So part of the reigning with Him it means that those who persevere in faith are truly united to Christ and will live and reign with Him forever. Now we may not often think of ourselves as kings and queens who will rule over creation, but this consequence of our redemption flows directly from who the Lord has made us to be and what salvation accomplishes in repairing His broken images. God made us to have dominion over creation to rule it for His glory. We we forfeited our ability to fulfill this vocation in Adam, but Christ has succeeded in reigning over creation as the last Adam. In Him, we are now able once more to achieve our original purpose as righteous rulers of the earth. And it stresses the future aspects of that. So, so just, just, just go with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 to give you an idea of what this is talking about. Because remember, everything to the letter of the church at Philadelphia is not just about their present condition at the time the was written, but about the second coming through the Davidic covenant promises of God, including the fact that we will reign and rule with Him. When we finally ever, Lord willing, if Christ doesn't return, if He does, it won't matter. But if He doesn't, we come to Revelation chapter 20. Can you imagine that? We'll all be 180, but we'll get there. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were gathered, were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or His image and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. And reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the reason 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3 says that we were going to reign over the angels. We're going to judge the angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3. We should all be looking forward eagerly to that final day. But let us not forget that even now we are reigning with our Savior in many ways. Listen to me. Listen to me. There are aspects of our reigning now with Him. Let me simply tell you this. Before you were saved, right, sin reigned over your life and all you could do was sin. But once you were saved, sin no longer has dominion over you. You Listen, God's curse upon sin has been broken in your life. You sin today because you want to, not because you have to. 
Sin no longer has dominion over those who believe in Jesus Christ. For we live in the gracious area in which we have been adopted as God's children. Therefore, Paul said at church at Rome, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. And he wasn't giving you something under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to do that you don't have the power and the ability to do. Because you have kept the Word, you have little power. The power of sin is broken in your life. Sin no longer no longer reigns over you. You reign over it. And therefore, do not go back and let sin reign in your mortal bodies. By the Spirit, we can now conquer sin and grow in holiness. We're also free from the tyranny of the law over guilty consciences. Forgiven in Christ, we may fulfill the royal law of liberty in serving our Creator because of the purchase that He has paid for us. As brief as I can do it. We come back to Revelation chapter 3 verse 9. With that in mind, knowing that this letter, everything about this letter is about the second coming of Christ. The one who has the key of David, all second coming promises. It gives us eternal life, eternal security for future promises. He says this. As we reign with Him, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. Yes, it's simple future tense. I will make them come. And it's assured as the power of God to make it happen. But let me show you something. I'll close with this. That absolutely blew me away as I began to think about it. Think about this church in Philadelphia. They're there. They're suffering. They're claiming the name of Christ and they're being rejected. They're standing up for truth and rather than being blessed by God like the world would say that you ought to be, they lost their livelihood. Instead of growing and prospering in their businesses, they lost them. Instead of their, instead of the, right, the walking around and everybody seeing halos on their head and all of this stuff that these are special people of God. Listen, they were rejected and they were denied and their goods were plundered and they had no power and they lost their jobs and they lost their livelihood and they were, they were, uh, sought out by these liars who were part of the synagogue of Satan and who I promise you, however terminology you want to do it, they did not make life easy for them. And in doing that, people would mock them and say, where is your God? He doesn't love you. If He loved you, He would not let this happen to you. Even today I hear that. If God loved you, you wouldn't be going through what you're going through. <laughs> you know, why are you doing all this? Why are you giving away your income? Why are you giving up your weekends? Why are you trying to plant? Why are you doing it? What is, why are you sacrificing for God? Why are you doing stuff? Look at your life. Look at who you are. Look at what you've become. Are you kidding me? If you would abandon all that and do this, you would be blessed according to your definition of blessing. Imagine a church at Philadelphia and there they are. And all of these things are happening. And they receive this letter 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what He says. I will make them come and bow down at your feet. And I think that was good, but I think this is better. And they will know. Future tense. With certainty. They will know that I... Present perfect tense. Have loved you. Perfect tense. You know what perfect tense means? It means finished, completed action, and the results continuing on and on and on into the future. When Jesus died on the cross, He said, It is finished. And the results of His accomplishments saved us when we were saved and carry us all the way into the future and all the future and the things that Christ accomplished on the cross. He said, perfect tense, it is finished. And those results carry all the way into the future. Here's what He says. They will know that I not will love you, I have loved you. And the effects of His love will go with them all the way into the future. And therefore, those who have come will bow at their feet when they know. When they know. Let's be clear. They're not going to bow at your feet because of who you are. Though you're great people. You're great people. I like you a lot. (laughs) Beloved, they're going to bow at your feet, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. And they're not going to bow at your feet because of who you are, but they're going to bow because of who you are with. When they come and Christ is reigning and you're reigning and ruling, listen, they're not going to bow down. Are you kidding me? There's nothing worth in my life that would want anybody to bow down not be bowing down to me they're bowing down because Christ and who he is and all he's done and all he's accomplished and we just get to be there on his side reigning with him when all those people come and bow down in the presence of Christ they're not going to bow down and worship you they're going to bow down and worship him to God be the glory couple things in closing. Number one, if you're not saved, if you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, none of this matters. It's not, it doesn't pertain to you. It doesn't pertain to you at all. Your first order of business is to repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Become a follower of Christ. But secondly, there are some of you and you have gone through in our poor church has gone through so much and from the world's perspective it may not look like we're being blessed it may look like we are under attack or being cursed or all of these things to try to distract us and discourage us in that which God has called us to do I just want to remind you of this today that God says he loves you 
He loves you who you are. He loves you as you are. He loves you the way that you are. If you're a child of God, you belong to Him. And listen, you are His through and through. And He is perfectly 100% pleased with you. And just because you're going through a hard time does not mean, does not mean that God is not happy with you, does not mean that God does not love you, does not mean that God has abandoned or rejected you in any way. It means that His purpose for you in this place in life right now is what you're going through. And He is providentially sovereign over all that takes place in your life. And you have to, you do not have to question whether or not God loves you. He has loved you. He died on the cross and the results of that has saved you and will carry you on through into eternity. Your task is out of that love relationship with Him. And my task out of that love relationship with Him is to read His Word, to obey His Word, and not deny His name so the power of God can rest upon us to accomplish the purposes of God He has for us. But I'd be remiss to not come back to, have you denied the name of Christ? And I would plead with you by the grace of God that you would ask Him to give you strength, to give you courage, to give you boldness, to to live in a way that honors His name, and to loose your tongue to share the gospel of good news with others so that verbally you do not deny His name, that you positively talk about Christ, but then that He will zip your lips and shut them when what wants to come out does not value Christ and denies His name. And may God continue to do that work in all of our lives. Beloved, next week we begin verse 10, which is one of the most amazing verses in all of Scripture as it relates to the tribulation, the second coming of Christ. And we're going to have to we're going to have to study and look at it. Study it this week and look at it. And we're going to be ready to come back and tackle it next week. Uh, Lord willing. We don't know where we'll be, but we know that we will be. Uh, uh, good Lord willing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us and sending Jesus to die for us. God, thank you for the privilege. I, I don't understand what it means to reign and to rule uh, with you. I can't imagine uh, the humility that the believers in Philadelphia and us by extension will feel once we've seen you in your glory and see with eyes and not just eyes of faith the redemption that brought us into your kingdom to turn around and see those bowing at our feet, ultimately bowing at your feet. How awkward, how humbling, knowing that we are no different. We are simply sinners saved by grace. But Father, I'm thankful that you love us. I'm thankful that you sent Jesus to die for us. I'm thankful for the privilege of reigning and ruling with Christ. I pray, Lord, That even now we would continue to practice that reigning and ruling. That we would reign over sin in our life. That we would stop it from having its way in our life. That we would fight against it. That we would resist it. That we would overcome it by the power of the Word of God. 
I pray, Father, in other areas where we demonstrate that ability now that, that, Father, that we would live in such a way that others recognize the anointing on our lives. And, Father, as we share the gospel with them, may we see them come to faith in Christ. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We pray that we will reflect on it this week and that it may have practical application in our lives. And we're going to give you the glory for it all in Jesus' name. God's people said... Amen. Amen.